0: Well, thank you, worship team. As I see that the stage, except for Nate, is high schoolers, our media and sound as high schoolers, we are convinced the church is going to be just fine when the rest of us are gone, right? Young people who are following the Lord and leading us in worship is very encouraging. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 Corinthians 6 as we continue this important and incredibly relevant Uh, book, as the issues that Paul addressed in first century Corinth are pretty much what we are facing uh, today. Page 926, if possible, get your eyes on a copy of God's Word today. Just a week or so ago, I was driving past a house here in town that had a yard sign, You can put a yard sign, anything that you want to say. So this yard sign had a list of that person's values. And in in bold print, the the major title was simply, My Body, My Choice. And then what followed, though that's a... First of all, it's usually a, a way of defending abortion. What followed, though, was a list of all other kinds of uh, sexual lifestyles and sexual acts that this person was defending because it's my body and it's my choice. The idea is we can do what we want to with our body. And we get it. That's what the world thinks. Because if there is no God, then it's just our body, this life, these days do what we want. That lie is nothing new, though the slogan might be a bit. Satan's been using that as his playbook for the last 2,000 years, for sure, as we see in first century Corinth. But it's interesting that while we expect the world to think that way, Paul didn't write this to the world. He didn't publish this in the Corinthian Gazette he wrote it in a letter to the church because his responsibility was not to fix the world of unbelievers who would do what unbelievers do his responsibility, his burden was that believers in Christ would not be doing what the unbelievers do so this passage reveals God's perspective on sexuality Could not be more relevant. Basically saying your body is a gift from God. In fact, the final concluding argument will be it's the dwelling place of God. And so it must be used for the purposes of God. And so the world will see what we talk about and teach today from God's Word as being narrow and restrictive when in fact... What God is doing is elevating who we are. Elevating who we are, elevating the whole concept of sexuality by saying, sex is for marriage, the sacred ordinance covenant that God has given as the basis of the family, the basis of society. The passage begins, we're starting in verse 9. 9 through 11 create a transition really from... The God perspective of conflict we looked at last week, and now it's the foundation of God's perspective of sexuality in verses 12 to 20. But it prepares us by showing us here's what the world is like, but here's what you believers must be. Verse 9 Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a new you, and it's not verses 9 and 10. If you are a believer in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, he died for your sins. Verse 11 is your status, your identity. Children often try to get their parents to go along with something, playing the card, But so-and-so's parents let them do it. And you probably remember if you were a child once doing something like that. How did that work for you? So-and-so's parents, they let them do it. And you heard something like, we're not those parents. (laughs) You're part of this family. And they were right because who you are should determine what you do. So it's very important to understand that verse 11 is us, verses 9 and 10 That's not believers in Christ. The unrighteous, the unbelievers, same term is used of unbelieving judges in verse 1 of this chapter from last week. So do Christians sometimes do the things in this list? Oh yeah. The point is not that believers never do these things. The point is that it is normal for the world and it should be repulsive to those of us who call Christ our Savior what the world defends a christian should detest you could you could if you just you know read your news feed or or a blog or editorial you can find something in today's culture to defend everything on that list as actually right except maybe swindlers you know mostly just swindlers like swindling but otherwise it's it's all in fact it's Almost everything is legal now except the swindling. So, we are called to be different. The list begins with what I think is, uh, because the main subject is sexual immorality, he uses a term that is an umbrella, broad term, sexually immoral, the word porneia we've come across uh, already in, in, in uh, Corinthians, doing anything sexual outside of the love life of a married couple, man and woman. Is that radical today or what? We are very different when we follow Christ. But then he lists other sins as well. Idolatry. I think he's actually picturing, because this is going to be a subject about the body, I think he's picturing of how people are bowing themselves to a false deity, which is the basis of all sexual immorality as well. And then he lists some specifics. Adulterers a specific sexual sin, opposite sex relation with someone not your spouse. Homosexuals, he actually uses two Greek terms uh, for homosexuality, both of them uh, male gender and translated differently, but never mind the details. Historical documents of the first century show that uh, homosexuality was was rampant in Roman royalty among the emperors, etc., and yes, the Bible calls that sin. The next sin is greed. And we go, you mean that's like right next to that in the list? Because, I mean, that's, like, that's a more acceptable Christian sin. Drunkards, habitually drinking to excess. We rarely use the word sin for addictions. The Bible and Paul does not hesitate to connect That is a sinful addiction. Sin is addictive. Slanderers. Different terms translation wise. But attacking someone's reputation, saying things about them to put them down. Another acceptable Christian sin. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a great book that I think one of our adult Bible fellowships studied through one time. Called Respectable Sins. Uh, greed and slander made the list swindlers cheating someone will not inherit the kingdom of god now the word inherit does not always mean the same as inhabit the kingdom of god but here the, the context suggests that this is simply describing um, sins that characterize unbelievers and should not characterize us who have placed our faith in christ so the contrast then, verse 11, Paul, you can, you can hear the pleading in Paul's voice, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God, of our Lord. That's who you were. Paul knew the Corinthians. He knew their stories, and he thinks through and goes, yeah, adultery, yeah. Homosexuality, yeah, they've, they've, they've been corrupt. They've been in trouble with the law. They, and, and just goes down the list. And, and, and just for anybody that's piously sitting in the corner, and things like greed and slander. And everybody begins to realize, wait a minute. Is my life reflecting who I am? Because Paul wants most of all that we would be motivated to holiness For the right reason. And the right reason is in verse 11. It's the grace of God. You were washed, sanctified, justified. You're a different person now. Paul does not say, you Christians have now conquered these sins. Paul does not say, I've listed these things because now I see the fruit of your life. That none of you ever do this anymore. You're not saying that. The reason he's bringing it up is because he knows it's happening among the believers in Christ in the church. But he says, if you understood and grasped and probed the depths of the grace of God and what He's done for us, you can realize you are a different person. That is not you anymore. And he's calling them to holiness. Three things that happened. I believe all the, he's using these three theological terms to describe what happened to us the moment we put our faith in Christ. And if you have not put your faith in Christ, and today you're going, this is a radically new way of looking at, at, at sexuality, this is, this is so counter, my, the direction my mind goes, this is, and you say, but yet there's something in your heart that says, I want that. Then you have to understand the first step is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you put your faith in Christ, these things happen. Number one, you are washed. It's a word for forgiveness, but it's not the most common word for forgiveness. But it's a very beautiful, graphic word. Just picture all of the mess of your sin right here, and then there's a golly washer just takes it all away. It's washed away because you are forgiven. And so if there's something in that list that you used to do, something that you still do, But you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Not because of you. Not because God is light on sin. But because Christ paid the penalty of your sin on the cross. And if you put your faith in that, you are forgiven. David, the otherwise very godly king, who fell to the temptation of lust, 1 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel. Fell to the temptation of lust, which became the sin of adultery, which he tried to cover up with the sin of murder. Experienced the forgiveness of God. He wrote in Psalm 103:12: As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he said, East and west not north and south because of course God knew he made the world round you go east you just keep on going east don't you you go north you start going south (laughs) but the way that God's forgiveness it's continuous never ending the moment you put your faith in Christ all of your sin is eternally forgiven sins before then sins you're involved in then and the sins you will sin until you go to be with the Lord in heaven Is it risky to talk about grace like this? There's always a risk talking about grace. There's always a risk that a self-centered Christian will use grace as an excuse to sin. But the reason we're told this, and the reason there's Romans chapter 6, is to tell us, but why would you? If you understood what he's done for you, why would you trample on the grace of God? Why wouldn't you rather let it transform you Don't be afraid of grace. Grace, let it transform you. Washed. Secondly, sanctified. Now you may, if if you studied sanctification, you're thinking of how it's an ongoing thing, and it is. But I think he's talking here about how we are sanctified the moment we put our faith in Christ in this sense. Because the basic meaning of the word sanctify, or to be made holy, is that we are set aside as special. If you study the Old Testament sacrifice system, not only must the priests and the temple be holy, so cleaned up and purified certain ways, in fact, the very utensils and vessels they used had to be holy. You're thinking, how can a thing be holy? This isn't idolatry. No, it's not idolatry at all. It means that that vessel is used only for the worship of God. So the priest didn't like take that one home and they use it for their drinking water and they take out the garbage with the vessel and then, oh yeah, we need it at the temple today. You can't do that. Because it was set aside only for the worship of God. We were set aside, as special when God saved us, says, I want you to be mine in a special holy sense. You were sanctified. That's why you wouldn't be involved in homosexuality or greed because they're both sin so many times as Christians we ask ourselves, well what am I allowed to do like like little children how close to the line can I get instead of asking what was I saved to do washed, sanctified justified and that's like the the description of, of God's final decision was made the moment you put your faith in christ says paid sin paid forever you have now a permanent eternal status why because of what jesus christ has done and the holy spirit is doing at the end of verse 11 in the name of the lord jesus christ in other words the cross has the power to forgive you and by the spirit of our god the spirit is the one who made us that new creation and now can empower every transformation he wants to make in our lives. These verses are crucial to understanding what God's word is gonna say now in verses 12 to 20 about our sexuality because we have to understand how new and different we are. If we don't, we will slide into the world's way of thinking about sexuality and sexual attraction. Only believers in Christ can understand why we should be holy and pure. To really understand why. Only believers are going to understand why what the world is saying about my body and my choice is a lie. Only believers will have a desire for sexual purity that is about more than consequences. It's about responding to the grace of God. We are radically, totally saved, washed, sanctified, justified. That's why this will make sense, verses 12 and on. We must use our body for Christ's purposes because our body is His. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's verse 12. It kind of like wakes us up. Food for the stomach. And the stomach for food but god will destroy them both the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body wait a minute where's he going here what this can be very very confusing if you don't understand a very basic thing that's happening here and our bibles will put it in quotes and we and every translator is trying to get it right but he is first of all quoting what the corinthian unbelieving world says and then he's reacting to it everything is permissible those aren't, those aren't Paul's words. I'm convinced what he's saying here is what the world is saying, or as the NIV has it, I have the right to do anything. And literally it's that word of right, or I've got the, you know, this is my right. So the world is saying I have the right to do anything. The world It's really another way of saying my body, my choice. And Paul actually says, yeah. Now, The, second, the next line is Paul's response where he says, uh, yeah, you could, but would that be beneficial? No, it's not good for you at all. You know that you could apply that to eating? You could have, if you're an adult, you could have potato chips for breakfast, cake for lunch, ice cream for dinner. Sound good? And the, hopefully, if you're over 11, that doesn't sound good to you. But you could. That's a child's view of a menu, but you're not a child because you understand what's good for you. Not beneficial, but but the subject here is sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage. You could do what you want, it's almost all legal, but you will have more disease, unplanned pregnancies, deeper emotional hurts, more divorce. Studies are showing that about three-fourths of couples live together outside or before marriage right now. And that's a secular source. And psychology today uh, did a study how that sex before marriage increases the likelihood of divorce after marriage by somewhat substantial percentage. The myth is, you have to find out if you're compatible, uh, assuming that means, you know, physical compatibility. compatibility. And God's Word says, you got to be spiritually compatible. That'll be at the end of chapter 7. Be spiritually compatible, you'll be all right. In fact, it's going to be the best. It's going to be the best sex life ever, to be spiritually compatible. Everything's permissible. He repeats it and gives another response. Everything is permissible. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's Paul's response. I don't want to be dominated by something. You see, our freedoms can enslave us. It's happening all over the world all the time. Our freedoms are enslaving us because people indulge in their sexual desires thinking, this will make me happy. Very short sighted because it doesn't in the long run. And before you know it, those desires now control your life. It's all fun and games until you're addicted mastered. I mean, how many people wish they had never started to smoke? How many, how many people wish they could stop drinking? How many people wish that how many Christians wish they could stop viewing porn? The, the figures of the statistics of how many Christians are involved in pornography are staggering. Because sin is addictive. And if you're struggling, you need spiritual help. If you don't address it, your guilt will grow. Your guilt will grow because secrecy drives it deeper. So you now you're pushed into deception. And the saddest part is that your spiritual, as guilt and secrecy grows, your spiritual effectiveness is deflated. And those desires that God had given you to have, you want to have an impact on your family and your friends and the community and church, and you're rendered ineffective. I could exercise my freedom, Paul says, but then it would master me. He quotes the Corinthian culture yet again, I believe, where it says then in verse 13, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. I think that's where the, the quote ends. Uh, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. It, it was some kind of a saying about the body saying, the body doesn't matter because it dies. You can do anything you want to with your body because it's, it's just for this life. Again, it just sounds like the yard sign I saw. But this reference to the food that the Corinthians were making was, was probably alluding to more than that. It seems like the subject, because the subject is sexual immorality, It's this other familiar saying of our day, basically, that that food and and sex are like the same, you know, it's a a biological need. And the body doesn't matter, because I can do what I want to with it. A secular psychologist this week, I I was reading a source, says, that's not true, that they're the same. Here's his quote. A lack of food leads to death. A lack of sex, on the other hand, does not. And the psychologist went on to make the point that's virtually biblical. Food is simply biological, but the sexual desire is so far more. So much more. So the Corinthian philosopher is saying to the body, anything you do with your body is okay, it doesn't really matter, because just for this life, And Paul says, thank you for the transition. I was just going to talk about that. It's not just for this life. So the middle of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise you also. You see, the resurrection of the body is his next argument for why we should be, as believers, sexually pure. Your body lives forever. The body's not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. You can't just do what you want to. He had a plan for it. And his plan for your sexuality is good. Chapter 7, next week, will describe the importance of sex within marriage. This is about the importance of abstinence when not married. God's word is that practical your body is meant for the Lord. And then he says, the Lord for the body. That's a little more difficult phrase, but he seems to be alluding to the fact that when Christ redeemed us, he redeemed our soul and body. He must be saying that because that's the very next verse, is about the resurrection. The Lord did what he did for us for the benefit of our body. He raised the Lord Jesus. He will raise us. So the Corinthian philosophers and today's secular humanists are, are, are all wrong to say the body doesn't matter because, A, it was given to us by God, and secondly, it lives forever. Our body lives forever. Did you know that your body lives forever? This, this is going to alarm some of you, right? Come, come on, I thought I was getting a new body. Was Jesus' body in the tomb after the resurrection? Why not? His body wasn't replaced. It was resurrected. Now relax. Don't look in the mirror and say, oh no, eternal. (laughs) It will be perfect. It will be glorious. Everything will be fixed, okay? But we are going to be, we are raised because our body is going to be made new. We're going to have an eternally glorious version. We are going to be eternally upgraded to a body like Christ had. Which is why we need to be holy in this body. We please him in this body. Paul adds yet another in verses 15 to 17, another doctrinal defense for sexual purity. I just kind of get the impression that Paul is lining up all these, these doctrinal arguments because he says, you know, I'm writing to people who actually know God and know his word, but, now they're, but they're living this way. They've got to understand what the world cannot understand, that there is a contradiction between who they are and what they're doing. I think he's, he's probably kind of almost defensive because he probably was getting the cultural pushback that we can expect to say, really? That's so outdated. What's the big deal about sex outside of marriage? He says, here's one more thing. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you, not know, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and this is an Old Testament quote, Genesis two twenty four: the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We've already mentioned in previous weeks that in Corinth, prostitution was not only a normal red light thing, uh, district thing, but it was actually what was offered To worshipers at the pagan temples. Prostitutes of both genders available. And Paul wrote this to Christians because some Christians were evidently still doing that. I can have a prostitute on Friday. Worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday. It's incredible how sometimes as Christians we can give ourselves liberties and yet try to present an image on Sunday. Paul didn't write this to the world to say to the world how bad they were. He wrote this to Christians to say, stop imitating the world. We're members of Christ. So it's a picture of the, the, the body of Christ, right? Is the, uh, the body of Christ is the church, so the church, Christ is the head. We're all like members of it, right? So we are part of that. And that's the reason we must be pure. And if we unite with the prostitute, you're one in body with her. That's the two become one flesh. Is that saying that... that uh, those are all marriages? No. It's saying that, well, number one, it's a violation of God's design for marriage. It's also a violation of your relationship with Christ because you have been united with Christ. So if you can, if you can understand the oneness in marriage issue, you've violated that. And number two, you have violated the oneness you have with Christ when you join your body to a prostitute to become one flesh. That's the original design from day one, Adam and Eve man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Sexual intimacy expressed the sacred nature of that marriage, that first marriage and every marriage since. It is ordained by God not as a legal arrangement, but as a covenant before God, which is then expressed beautifully, pleasurably, to celebrate his goodness and not our selfishness. So God created sexual relationships to create life, to create pleasure, to create oneness, unity, emotional closeness that we long for. And to take and seize that design for selfish, sensual gratification defies God himself who designed it. Dr. Warren be pastor and writer and broadcaster, compared sex outside of marriage to a man who robs a bank. Here, here you go. It's his money. I'm sorry. He gets money, but it's not really his. And he'll pay the price for it eventually. And then he contrasts that with sex within marriage, which has value because, like money, you earned it. So if I had a $100 bill here, I could use that hundred-dollar bill to do something good and beneficial, and fun. I can use it to uh, buy tickets to a game, eat some really good food, go someplace I really enjoy. And you could actually be glad that I Sid got hundred bucks; he can he can go enjoy these things. But what if you found out that Sid stole the hundred dollars? Completely changes the way you'd view whatever i spent the hundred on money is good when it's earned and legitimate and money becomes bad when it is stolen paul is saying that the very same act which is so important in marriage chapter seven is tainted and a stolen violation of your relationship with god because you are one with christ in a very real sense you that's the point. We are a new creation in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We are linked in Christ. And so that violates our oneness with Christ as well as any oneness with our spouse. So Paul's conclusion, his crescendo, his, his what to do now is verses 18, 19, and 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Bottom line is, it's not our body. Christ bought it. He bought us soul and body. On the cross This passage includes two commands. Up till this point in what we study today, there have been no commands, no imperatives. Do this, don't do. This. He hasn't anything until now, he hasn't, he hasn't given any commands. Instead, what he's done is he has reminded us, first of all, who we are spiritually. You're not them. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. He's reminded us who we are. And then he's pointed out the lies of the world. He says, here's what they say, and then he tells us why it's a lie. He's confronted it. Our body does matter. It's united with Christ. It's going to live forever. Now he finally directly issues a command. There's a negative command, beginning of verse 18. There's a positive command to finalize it in verse 20. The, positive, the negative is flee. The positive is honor. Flee. Run. We are not told to fight our sexual temptations in that sense, but to flee them. Run. Be afraid. Be very afraid to escape because he knows the power of the sexual drive and attraction that God has built into us. He knows just how powerful it is. In every what, Whatever you've experienced, God knows it. He designed it, but he says, if it's outside of my design, run. Many of you know the story of godly Joseph, the Joseph of the Old Testament. One of the sons of Jacob, Joseph with his siblings become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was the favored or favorite son of Jacob, and his brothers hated him for it. So when there was that opportunity to get rid of Joseph, some wanted to kill him, others said, let's just sell him. Many people have thought of selling their siblings, but he actually did it. He ends up in Egypt, in Egypt as a slave, he's bought by Potiphar, Potiphar Utilizes him as a servant and elevates him because he's so good at it, and makes him the manager or steward of his entire household. It's all going so well. The problem was that Joseph was also a good looking guy, and when Potiphar was not around, his wife continually tried to seduce him. What did he do? Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Kind of a PG-13 section of Scripture here. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And this is the most important thing in this entire passage. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Accountability to God. Nothing will ever be more important to your purity than your accountability to God. The story continues. That didn't take it all away. Next passage, I can read it if we can't get it on the screen. And, she's, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, so she kept trying, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Ah, now there's a different tactic. Refusing was not enough. He refused to be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and what did he do? He ran out of the house. So A, he refused to be with her, and when that didn't work, and it even got more intense, he fled. Flee immorality. Now you may also know the story actually took a very difficult term. Turn You'd think that now, now it's all going to go well for Joseph. Instead, what Potiphar does, Potiphar's wife does, is she turns it around, and because she's so, feeling so rejected and so angry for being rejected, accuses him of assaulting her. Potiphar believes her instead of Joseph, throws him in prison. And the rest of the story is an amazing story of God's providence because he did what was right, but know that even when you do the thing that's right, sometimes it's going to be a painful process what are the principles number one accountability to god number two is then flee but he would not sin against god that's what he told her i will not sin against god accountability is great every kind of accountability is great okay and i know there's there's groups even with open door that that are meeting for accountability for purity that's a wonderful thing Never let it replace your accountability before God. You can lie to your accountability partner. You can get around filters. Whatever, whatever you do is great, but it's the only ultimate accountability is accountability before God, which means you need a relationship with God that means something to you because then you, you want to be accountable before Him because you're with Him all the time, and you know He's with you all the time, and you cannot hide from Him. Secondly, though, then, Joseph fled, escaped. Recognize when you're attracted to someone that's off limits to you and flee. The relationship is going too deep. We're talking about stuff that's too close. Flee you're on a work trip with work friends and you go to such and such an establishment no flee you're on the computer and you've done that before flee or you find something inadvertently flee but fleeing is even not the ultimate goal we'll never have the strength to live pure simply by avoiding what is evil, but being drawn to that which is ultimately great. Honor God with your body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Do you, you, you see that's, that's an entirely different goal? And the verse... Uh, This is introduced with that statement in verse 18. Every other, all those sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What's that saying? It's, again, a little bit difficult to understand, but the idea seems to be simply that you are doing spiritual damage to yourself. Because of who you are, you're linked to Christ. You are doing spiritual damage to yourself. You're sinning against yourself when you violate those, those parameters. Therefore, honor God with your body. So, your body's a temple. Your body not only matters to God, He inhabits your body. In some, not so much spatial sense, but spiritually, He has come to live and works from within us. If you have put your faith in Christ it's like, this is like the clinching argument. He is a, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The reason we no longer have brick and mortar temples that we as believers are supposed to go to and it doesn't matter if it's this building or that building, if we're under a tree, this, after, this evening we'll be, we'll be having a worship service outside of a building. You don't need a building because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you. Ever since the day of Pentecost, it's, very, it's a very unique and special part of this dispensation, this age of grace that if you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within every one of us. That recognition changes everything that God is living within us. Now, now, it's not my body, my choice, but rather it's my body, the temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The world is wrong. Again. And so instead of asking, as Christians we often do, what's wrong with... You know, such and such. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's such a big deal that. Or why can't I? These are all kind of child type questions, right? The question is what were we saved for? And that was that you were bought, you are not your own, you're bought with a price, the cross. Therefore, honor God with your body. The cross is how he paid, not just for your sin in some vague, immaterial sense, but the cross paid that your body would be resurrected and live forever with Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. I don't know what God might have spoken to you about today. There's probably some next step. Sometimes the next step is to accept God's grace and to realize you're washed, sanctified, and cleansed. Declared righteous before God. Sometimes the next step is something you're involved in that you dare not be anymore. You need to seek help. Sometimes it's how are you going to deal with temptations? What is drawing you that direction? What are the triggers that draw you in? God knows those intense desires. He says you're not like the rest of the world because... I sanctified you if you maybe the picture to keep in mind is the the temple utensils and vessels that's who we are we're holy we're set aside and we put our faith in Christ he says you're mine you're mine I picked you I picked you to glorify me so glorify me honor me as well in your body his arguments have been clear in a, in a very impure world of Corinth like ours Why should we be sexually moral and pure? A, the grace of God, verses 9 to 11. B, we belong to Christ. C, this body is going to live forever in its resurrected state. D, we're united with Christ. And finally, we're a temple. God actually lives within us. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know our our world you know our flesh Uh, you know our hearts you know the the temptations where where these uh, perverse desires that are common in the world become uh, so close so powerful in our lives pray for anyone struggling right now with some addictive sin in this area god please give them hope help them to understand your grace and then the power of your spirit Lord, I pray that we would be praying for one another that we could be a pure body before you individually and corporately as a church family. We thank you in Jesus' name.